Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Island of Dr. Moreau. On the sixth day, God created man. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the eighth day, in the year 2010. In a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible. Unmistakably human. Undeniably animal. On the island of Dr. Moreau. I'd like to present my children. Father? Oh my God. From director John Frankenheimer. H.G. Wells' most terrifying creation. About the line that separates man from beast. And the notorious doctor who dared to cross it. We are men. Because the Father has made us men. Marlon Brando. Val Kilmer, David Thewlis, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Boy, do we have an episode for you. It's not a well-known film. It's not an easy film to get hold of. It's not a great film. It's also not a terrible film. But the making of it was rather extraordinary, and the effect of watching it is quite bizarre. Settle in for a tale of a passionate but unpractised director in way over his head, a replacement director more interested in just getting a wreck of a shoot completed. Not one, but two dueling, pretentious prima donna starlets, the pair left over after a rapidly rotating cast of jump-ins and drop-outs, a script with no ending, a mini-me, a master of disguise, a punch-up in the art department, and a real-life fucking warlock. Welcome to the heart of darkness on the island of lost souls that belongs to the titular Dr. Moreau. This was a relatively impromptu one. Uh, I uh, had difficulty getting hold of this film because it was briefly in print in the late 90s and in the UK and then immediately out of print. It, uh, it came out in 1996 originally, the, uh, the film. I had to order it three times from CEX, which is a, uh, a second-hand uh, store in the UK because it was so expensive on eBay. And eventually, after being sent the 1977 one three times, the same one twice, I uh, ended up just getting it from eBay anyway, purely because I figured that when I finally got to see this film, it might be noteworthy enough for a, uh, a show. And I think we have... It's not quite Zardoz, but it's in the ballpark. In terms mm. of... Like, if you remember, like, I think more fucked up things happened off camera on this one yes. than happened yeah. on camera in Zardoz. Mm. But more that, but Zardoz is a more bizarre film with a with a somewhat less insane making of yeah, story well, behind it. Zardoz had a completely batshit script. Yeah. Whereas this had no script uh, because the <laughs> estranged director shredded it before he left. Yeah, and, and because the uh, prima donna leads kept improvising the whole time. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. 
So it's based on the then 100-year-old novel uh, by H.G. Uh, Wells, The Honour Dr. Moreau, which is now 122 years old. came out in 1896. So one presumes it's either public domain now or at least rapidly approaching public domain. I could make a Dr. Moreau. You could, that's what I was hinting at. Thinking you could about make it. a Dr. Moreau. Okay. And you know what else? Richard Stanley could make a Dr. Moreau. He could. I don't think he'd want to, though. <laughs> no, neither do I. Um, this was made twice during the 20th century beforehand as a film. Uh, there was The Island of Lost Souls in 1932, and there was the, the 1977 Island of Dr. Moreau, which I just mentioned I got sent two or three times from C- by CEX. The original premise of the book is Guy you know, back in the uh, late 19th century, you know, washes up uh, after a shipwreck on an island and uh, it's run by Dr. Moreau, who's been experimenting on turning humans into... No, sorry, animals into humans. Mm, Yes. And he's thinking about turning humans into animals. Well, I think it's a play on a mad scientist trying to either prove or disprove or work with Darwin's... Theory of natural selection. Which at the time was relatively new. And controversial. Yeah. And uh, he ends up getting off the island and going back to uh, uh, London. And there's there's musings and philosophy in there on the, the animal nature of man. Uh, the 1932 version added what uh, was customary for colonial stories at the time, which is a ravishing beauty for the man to uh, have sex with. And she was a panther woman that had been, um, like, uplifted from a panther. And uh, the 77 version also introduced this sort of cat woman who was, uh, you know, the, the, the woman that uh, he, he was to, to, to score getting off the island. And it has kind of a... How does that one end? Well, there's a, there's a twist to that one. It's not really a twist. She starts it's, turning it's into a cat as they get off obvious, the but No, island. that's the thing. In, in the 77 version, it is not made apparent that she is an animal too because her transformation is so complete and impressive and she's so gorgeous and he has sex with her. She's got a big case of born sexy yesterday. She really does. Oh, my God, she really does. As a reminder, folks, the born sexy yesterday trope is where your very basic man comes into contact with an exceptional girl who is at once super sexy and weirdly infantilized. So much as I love it, the fifth element, Tron Legacy, I guess Splash. In all cases, the born sexy yesterday girl clings to the basic man in a kind of teach me your human ways. And it has a relationship to this colonial tribal fantasy if wonder woman had been told entirely from steve trevor's perspective it might have felt a bit like that but it was from diana's perspective but let's get back to the basil exposition version of the island of dr moreau and the cat girl until they get off the island and she is deprived of access to the medication that keeps her human he doesn't realize it's only when he then sees that she's starting to turn and it kind of it pulls out on this sort of this is his moral dilemma does he turn the boat around and go back to the island and attempt to turn her human again or does he keep going back to england stroke wherever a ship turns up does he bash her head in with an oar it's either or Anyway. Or take her with him and let her turn back into an animal. Yeah, just, you know, living in his house, shitting in a litter box. <laughs> He'd have to put her in a zoo. Cat People, sequel. 
prequel, technically. It is still set in the late 1800s. True it is, yes. So that that one had Michael York, who's Basil Exposition, and uh, it uh, feels both like Logan's run, because uh, it was sort of, you know, 70s uh, sci-fi, and uh, also it feels like Planet of the Apes, the original Charlton Heston one, which also has a beautiful but dumb native girl for Charlton Heston to fuck. But on to the 1996 Dr. Moreau. The original director... Uh, for it was uh, Richard Stanley uh, who directed a film that Neil has told me repeatedly to watch called Hardware which I haven't seen but I now kind of want to because I feel uh, affectionately disposed towards the director. Mm. I feel like we owe him something Yeah, yeah uh, and Richard Stanley had read uh, the H.G. Wells book and, and felt a deep, deep connection and kinship with the text. And so he wrote a screenplay uh, on it and, and really could envision what a modern day version of H.G. Uh, Wells' work would be. And, and he was very much about the idea of updating it because as far as he was concerned, it had to be applicable at every walk of life. It couldn't just be rooted back in the past. You made an argument that uh, actually it makes more sense for it to be back in the past and less sense now. Well, it's not that it necessarily makes more sense. It's just that if you if you remove it from that past context, you lose the opportunity to explore the whole theory of evolution angle and you either go full tilt into the genetic engineering element, which they don't in this, hmm. or you're left with a mess, which they were. Which they do. Uh, and now the, the film starts off. What we're going to do is we're going to tell you how the film goes, the 1996 version, and then we'll tell you, much like we uh, did with uh, Food Fight, the show of which we've recorded but haven't yet released, that's coming in the next few months, what happened to make this occur. So it starts off by assaulting you with letters. So the, the intro sequence is very much like a Chris Carter uh, TV series starring Lance Henriksen as an animal wrangler. And there's lots of sort of flashing imagery. Do you remember the, the X-Files intro? It I had was like, just thinking the, of the X-Files intro, yeah. But, loads but of made almost entirely out of eyes. Yeah, there's, there's eyes, there's weather, there's microorganisms, there's blood vessels, teeth boots, monkey nuts, trumpets and spanners. Yeah. And they all just fly at you one at another. And it's, and it's not an entire sequence either. They've got about maybe 25, 30 seconds of this sequence. Yeah. And then they repeat it. They loop it. Yeah. It's very expensive getting file footage. Of eyes. Sperms and eggs. There was a bit of that as well, I think. Okay. Well, it's, it's just, it's telling you... It may you, have been amoebas. It's telling you we are in the territory of bad science. Yes. Uh, so there, we cut to a life raft and there's three guys adrift in it and immediately two guys have a fight and fall into the ocean and a shark t- turns around and goes, Say! It li- you can see on its face it's going, Ah, two! I'm going to have a meal today and seconds! And uh, immediately savages them. Now, in the original book, the hero is called Prendick, right? Mm-hmm. The original casting for the hero in this film... Actually, not even the original casting. The last casting before it was David Thewlis uh, was, I will mention this because it's relevant to this moment, uh, was uh, for a character named Prendick, who would have been the hero, for a guy from Northern Exposure. And Thewlis's hero is called Douglas. That leads me to believe that they had the character... They couldn't just recast Thewlis because contracts had been signed. So they 
had the character of Prendick eaten by a shark. Yes. And so Douglas continued. And just to This brand new character. Just to confuse things further, Michael York's character in the 77 version is called Braddock, which leads me to believe that the three guys on this raft are called Prendick, Braddock and Douglas. And in each version, a different one of them survives. Brilliant. So you get a different (laughs) island each time. Yeah. Um, so it's procedurally generated, depending on who gets eaten by the shark. <laughs> so David Thewlis is a fantastic actor, but he's less heroic and more rat-like. In all of the uh, best roles he has, he's got this kind of slightly weird, slightly twisted, slightly oddball, possibly unsettling quality to him. He's um, Lupin in uh, the, the Harry Potter films. And they so. do use his innate creepiness to good effect in that. On purpose, yeah. But that means you've got an innately creepy actor playing your hero who's supposed to be your blonde-haired, blue-eyed everyman so that the audience can at least have a base... To, to, to relate to. Yeah. Instead, they've got this this little, little tiny, wispy, little mustachioed man talking in his Lancashire accent, mm. uh, which is difficult for Americans to uh, uh, equate themselves to. Right, stick with me. We're going on an island adventure. So automatically, straight out of the gate, you're running on half empty. Absolutely. And the again, harking back to the 77 version, which I will try not to do too much... But the I'm glad we saw it. the moral spectrum that they present you with in that you have Moreau at one end, Braddock at the other end. Braddock being played by Michael York sounds much more like this. There's an untouched purity about the man. And Montgomery in the middle. So if Montgomery you, is like a scientist buddy of uh, yeah, Moreau's. who has like a moral line, but is willing to subsume it in order to be. I don't know, part of Moreau's It's difficult to tell where uh, Montgomery's moral line lies in this one. In this one, yes. It's it's fairly obvious in the 77 version, but in this one it vanishes fairly quickly. But yeah, without that good man who washes up up on the beach, you then don't have anything by which to measure the acts that then occur. Hmm. Now, uh, the Blu-ray.com review of the Blu-ray of this, which is apparently very nice to look at, I only got the DVD, uh, said that it was bizarre that uh, uh, Kilmer was there in the role of Montgomery, who's this weird, twisted creep, and that Thewlis is playing apparently the straight-up st- you know, standard hero um, avatar guy, whereas it should be the other way around. Oh, my God, you're so right. And... Kilmer was supposed to be playing the hero lead. The problem was that Val Kilmer was allegedly very difficult to work with. And uh, eventually the uh, original director, that was um, Richard Stanley, director of hardware, I I suppose they they managed to negotiate him round to actually taking the different role, the Montgomery role, which would require less of him. He was contractually obligated to be in this film. I did feel like there was very little Montgomery in this. And uh, it feels like there could have been less as well. Like, you didn't even need as much as we got. I think they ended up with less than they even intended because um, Brando wouldn't work with him. Yes. Kilmer was one of the two prima donnas, and he got a reputation for being difficult to work with in Hollywood, possibly on the back of this film as well. It could have been the heat that got to him. It could have been the fact that he was uh, breaking up with Joanne Wally at the time. Oh, that was then, was it? That was then. Right. And he'd been with her since Willow. He was originally going to be the hero, instead they ended up with this twisted, weird guy, Thewlis, uh, who, again, I will say once more, is a fantastic actor and a very nice man. It's just that he looks like someone you wouldn't leave your kids with. Or your rabbits. Oh, no, he likes the rabbits. He does like rabbits. 
But you always expect him to turn. You always expect him to be a villain, like him to, to suddenly snap in all of his films. And he does. And he does. And the film itself, uh, especially at the beginning, is edited like a trailer. So there's lots of very quick cuts, and it cuts to the next bit and the next bit. And that could be just because they wanted it to feel irregular and the transitions to feel unnatural. Or it could just be that they didn't get enough footage mm. to, to really get you from place to place. Certainly not enough that they can use. This is something that plagued the recent Michael Fassbender film, The Snowman. They actually didn't have enough footage to move the film about. It became an editing nightmare. Dan Olson of Folding Ideas did a whole video on this. It's fascinating. The, the first, I will say this, the first half hour of this film, the pacing is incredibly fast. Yeah. It's breakneck. They cram 90% of the plot of the story into the first half hour. It's like a teenager jumps on your back and then jockeys you around the place, git surfing you to the uh, end of act one. Mm -hmm. Not many cars to Nick here, so instead they hijack pedestrians and run them around at terrifying leg speeds. It's called git surfing. All too often, the git is one of their own mothers. This was around the time, by the way, that uh, Val Kilmer was taking... He'd just done uh, Batman Forever, so you'd imagine that would make him the you know, highly desirable, you know, handsome action hero of loads of new blockbusters. Very shortly after this, uh, Val Kilmer was in another film with a very troubled production, The Saint. It's been forgotten by history, but uh, I remember rating it at a perfect three stars, as in the most mediocre film I would ever see, with everything else falling on either side. I think the modern-day model would be uh, Men in Black International, which looks a lot prettier, but is similarly forgettable, and had similar problems in production. In retrospect, I don't think the five-star system works when defining mediocrity in movies. I think that's much more deserving of a two-star rating. So uh, another thing about the, uh, the script is that everybody mumbles their lines. There were times when I wanted to put the subtitles on because everyone was like this. Uh, and it just seems like they aren't speaking with particular gusto. And then when you find out that they're being directed by somebody who was very cruel, uh, you can understand why they wouldn't particularly be passionate about enunciation. Mm. So we're on the island. We're surrounded by green. Uh, it, it felt a bit at this point like Apocalypse Now, which is quite important when it comes to the making of. Uh, and then we meet Aisa while she dances. So this is Feruza Bulk, fresh from the craft. Uh, what appears to be sort of a, a somewhat feline woman who's surprised at being looked at by David Thewlis lurking in the shadows like he does. She's just minding her own business, doing some kind of dance ritual. He gets taken to a compound, locked into his uh, bedroom by Val Kilmer, and the camera zooms around the bedroom in a very disconcerting way, and he then breaks out, stumbles in on a mutant animal surgery session, where a goat woman is giving birth to the next of a lengthy series of devil's backbones that they have in jars. Is that accurate? An accurate reading on this particular thing? I believe It is so. a live mammalian birth of... Uh, yes. Goat creatures, hum goat human creatures. Yes. Right. And this freaks out our our hero, ladies and gentlemen. Him. And our feckin' audience, I might add. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? And significantly uh, um, lingering footage of this in the making of quite put us off our breakfast. Yes, <laughs> it did. It was very distressing. Mm. 
So Douglas exits pursued by several bears as suddenly the inhabitants of Dr. Moreau's Island come out and there's a lot of Stan Winston's creature shop effects on show as he meets a lot of half-human, half-animal hybrids. Mm. And so he's running about the place and and this is probably the first moment of actual praise in this film because the creature shop effects aren't bad. They're not. By and large. Some I, of them are better than others. I would, I would argue... Four mid-90s. Yeah. In terms of what they actually did with them, they were obviously very dedicated, very talented people who put together what the director wanted question mark for everything to look like yeah however my issue with the creatures is that there is way too much variety they have thrown far too much shit at the wall yeah in the hope that it will just freak everybody out. You can't tell what anybody is because everything looks too much of a mess. Yeah. Um, and in the uh, in the 77 version, there were a lot of bears, the odd monkey, and um, I think there's a hyena and, the, and a tiger. But the costumes in the 77 version, when we say there are bears, is like Bungle from Rainbow. Yeah, but my, my point P. D. being, Jeffrey. he's working with the animals that are on the island. That makes sense. There are a number of the same species. In this, he's got one warthog, one hyena, one bear, one lion of some description, one cheetah. goat, one cheetah, one... You know what I mean? Is there a leopard It's guy? like, did, did Noah's Ark crash and you just worked with what you had? No elephant either. No. I'd complain. Could have done with an elephant, really. Yeah. Elephant's distinctive. This is a side effect of the design process in that all of the previs uh, drawings were so twisted and so creepy that when they were created in, in the flesh, as it were, you ended up with this cavalcade, this things that shouldn't be. And honestly, would it not have been more striking to create things that had some kind of natural beauty to them, some kind of elegance and grace, mm. something which actually contained a bit of that sense of natural self-possession instead it, it, it kind of it fits in with the themes of the actual book uh, in terms and, and the, what the story that you're telling here that this man has been fucking up nature and of course they're all twisted mistakes the problem is it was written by hg wells not thinking about how this would look on film in a hundred years time which is fucked up the thing that i keep coming back to on this is the recent trilogy of planet of the apes films where the apes themselves have a natural beauty there is a sense of something that is working not only correctly but above the status quo there's something really powerful about the apes and the way they communicate and their, their intensity and I feel like a version of this that could succeed would need to go down that path mm. well I think if it if it just had and, and again this is where I, I really would have liked to see Richard Stanley's version because this meant something to him he really had something invested in creating the themes and working with the ideologies that he wanted to explore about this story if the imagery from the creatures tells me anything from a thematic perspective, it is that there is a natural beauty to animals, there is a natural beauty to humans, but if you try and blend the two, you end up with something monstrous. And if that's the theme that you want to work with, great, run with that. But I didn't see that anywhere else in the story. In his travels, he uh, meets Mark Dacascus, uh, he of uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf and Crying Free Man, various capoeira martial arts movies. 
and later crow installments. Yeah, he was a couple of crows. And of course, seen most recently in John Wick 3. And we encounter Mark Dacascus in the jungle here, dressed as a leopard. And he looks really good when he's just sort of like crouching and going like that. And there's a little bit of Wendigo in there. And then he starts to gallop and it switches to 1996 CGI and at its baseline, terrible. It's awful. Some of the worst I've ever seen. It's, it's sci-fi channel shite. It's not even millennial rubber quality. It's well, it was four years before millennial rubber quality. Pre-millennial. But it doesn't it doesn't blend with the mm. background properly at all. He also stumbles upon the sermon of the Sayer of the Law, who's kind of an important character, but not in it much. And it is a damn shame that they cast Ron Perlman as this sidelined character. There's another character he really should have played. So he's this um, old goat priest and he's doling out laws like uh, you know animal we should not behave we may look like animals but we cannot live like animals <laughs> my sons you have to stop shitting in the house so no clawing of the trees no digging in the dirt no walking on all fours no sucking drink from a stream and no shagging more than one partner every which way his words not mine apparently men don't do that um, this this was baffling. His list here is baffling to me because there is there again, there are no moral absolutes in here at all. The original story, as far as I can ascertain, the reason that Moreau imposes these laws on them is that his his transitioning them from animal to human is twofold. The serum that they get changes their genetics, mm -hmm. but he needs to keep their psychology human, mm. otherwise their bodies will regress. We want what any species wants, civilization. Exactly. So he has to create this framework of the laws to keep them thinking like humans. And the laws that he imposes do have a kind of moral absolutism to them. So it's things like, don't shed blood. He's saying it because if yeah, they start tearing kill. into things, they'll give in to their animal urges. But also, don't kill is a fairly baseline rule for a civilization that you kind of need to adhere to. But Now, was that civilised? No. Fun, yes, but in <laughs> no, no sense, sense civilised. But these are so arbitrary. I mean, don't suck water from a stream. Humans do that. When they're desperate. Yeah. Oh, drinking water from the stream. Got to use, what, the drinking fountains? There's sod all other places to get water. Now, he may have been referring to something that's actually, I believe, in the Bible. Like, there's a, a, a general who says to his soldiers, when you get to the stream, I know you're all dying of thirst, but don't throw yourselves face down in the water because you then won't see if you get ambushed. Sit and drink calmly using your hand, and that way you'll see if anybody sneaks up on you. Okay... But expand on that and, and hmm. you know, make that a little bit more clear. But this is the central conflict of the story, as in the uh, the animals are fed this doctrine and then they start questioning it. They start questioning it because it's bullshit. True. <laughs> but it, it stands in for all other doctrines that we get fed as humans and yes. then we question them. And the suggestion being... Because they're bullshit. That if we question these laws and morals and we start making our own laws, it'll be anarchy. <laughs> We st if we start shedding off the laws, then uh, uh, we will become as animals. Calm yourself, Mr. Douglas. Don't add more pain to their already diminished lives. Why have you done this? Don't you feel the heat? As I do. I, I, I can't tolerate the sun. 
What I'm about to launch into is a very disrespectful screed about one of the most celebrated actors of all time. If you adore this actor's work, that is absolutely fine. You are in the majority. Everybody loves this guy. I personally don't. And this is mainly down to a measure of contempt that he appears to hold his fellow actors, his production teams, and his audiences in. Or did. He's dead now. Enter the Pope Mobile and the good Dr. Moreau. Marlon fucking Brando. I don't think I've actually been able to talk about Marlon. Oh no, wait, wait, wait. We did when we covered Superman. That was the one where he said to uh, Richard Donner, I was thinking uh, maybe Joel, maybe I could play him like a bagel. And Richard Donner went, that's very good, Marlon, but seriously, you're playing this like a dude. Uh, And yeah, Marlon Brando is a man who frequently showed no respect for his own craft or even the people around him who were supposed to be working hard. And that's fine, fair play to him. Lots and lots of people love Marlon Brando. Me thinking he's a total pillock, not particularly talented, and honestly not much of a screen presence, aside from as Don Corleone and Jarrell, isn't really going to harm Marlon Brando's career or history or legacy. It's not. But honestly, I think everybody basically wanking over him for decades simply for turning up, putting a hat on and sitting on a motorbike. I think that's what's made him have total contempt for his profession because everybody kept saying to him, Marlon, you're amazing. And he's like, I'm not doing anything. Genius. Ah, ah, the not doing anything tactic. This is a brand new way for actors to live. I'm just mumbling my lines with a detached intensity. So anyway, Marlon turns up. Fucking Christ. And he's got this weird little inflection and the way he talks. He seems to be like a posh little Hitchcock. And he's sort of talking like that. He's like a fucking Alice in Wonderland character. He's, he's, he, uh, he looks so weird. And he's supposed to look weird, but like he's, he wears white face paint. His head's done up in like a bandagey thing, so it looks like he's got a permanent toothache. He's got sunglasses on. He's like sort of swathed in white pajamas and wearing linens. He's got a Dorito strap to his head and he's wandering around in this mobile. he looks like a Jim Sterling character and Jim Sterling prides himself on getting to this level of weird but Jim Sterling has a way of going what the fuck am I doing because he's sure self aware does that occasionally <laughs> just not when anyone else is around <laughs> <sighs> Do you know what, though? I am still unclear, even after watching the, the documentary about mm-hmm. how that film got made, I am still unclear as to whether that was character design for Dr Moreau... Or just some Marlon shit that Marlon did in the morning. ...on putting in, mm. or that Marlon Brando himself would not go out in the sun without this zinc paint and head covering, and they had to fold it into the character because he just wouldn't come out in it. He's doing it. white face. And there were upsides to this uh, in that uh, his stunt double could do quite a bit of his uh, scenes and you wouldn't really need Marlon at all because, you know, you just got this weird albino gonk sitting around the place waving his hands, which is pretty much all Brando does. Now, what had happened was that uh, Richard Stanley had come to Brando in the uh, attempted making of at the beginning before anything was finalised with any of the studios and said, I am descended from... 
Sir Henry Morton Stanley, the famous explorer, possibly allegedly the basis for Kurtz in the original Heart of Darkness book, which Apocalypse Now was based on. And so when Brando played Colonel Kurtz... He was effectively playing this guy. And so Stanley appealed to Brando's famous vanity and uh, uh, said, you know, I, I really care about this Dr. Moreau thing. I think there's actually a, a relationship between Dr. Moreau and Heart of Darkness and uh, uh, Apocalypse Now, which you've already been in. It would mean so much to me if you would be in this film. And Brando, bless his little heart, was actually behind Richard Stanley and and and. and the studios were like, oh, okay. So this relatively unproven director, a director of very, very low-budget sci-fi schlock. And he was still very young at this point as well. Uh, yeah, who was very young. And actually, if you look at file footage of him from the 90s, it kind of reminds me of, and still does now, of Neil Gaiman or, or um, uh, like a young Alan, maybe not Alan Moore, maybe Alan Moore, actually, with minus the beard. Robert Rodriguez, definitely. A little bit, yeah. A little bit Frank, of Frank, Frank Miller's hat. A little bit of Frank Miller, but that's an un, uh, that's an unfortunate comparison because this guy seems to be very gentle, whereas Frank Miller is a fascist. So he had Brando on side, and the studio Bob Shea of New Line, who's insane, uh, said, "Yeah, okay, we'll we'll go with this, and we'll start this uh, movie up because you got Brando on board. Yay! You'll find out how he got Brando on board in a bit, folks. So anyway, Brando's on, but by this point, Richard Stanley wasn't directing at all." It was someone else entirely. We'll come to that in a minute. Honestly, of his performance, I, I was reminded more of like a Bond villain. Mm. Like he's he's very sort of oh, 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 come over here. A little uh, Charles Gray who played he's the it's just a jump to the left guy. He played Blofeld one or two times. Mm. Oh, he was also a guy who wasn't Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, the ridiculously racist one where Bond does yellow face. What year was the original film version, The Island of Lost Souls? 32. 32. Oh, yeah, you noted that was... Who was, it was playing? Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton, yeah. Um, who was effectively this big, huge, white-faced, bald guy. Moustache twirling. weird little mouth. Did he have a fez? I'm not sure, but it was, it was a silent film, wasn't it? Everything's got to be very visual and over the top and uh, very stark. And I really thought that... Ah, it was apparently ah, the first the non-silent film. So there'd been a, a silent version of it before that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But either way, I really thought that Brando had watched this version and was playing... As a boy. Yeah, and was playing Moreau like Charles Lawton had played it. You're convinced that the thing on this table isn't human. Its cries are human. Do you know what it is, what I began with? No. An animal. Well, we may as well discuss this frankly, now that you know the facts. I wanted to prove how completely she was a woman. But the impression that I got after watching the the making of was that he didn't know the story much or give much of a crap either way. Yeah, uh, Marlon would do things like saying, uh, I think we should uh, maybe give my character peacock feathers. So the set dresser or, or costume designer just, like, got into his car, barreled off down the road, and came back a few hours later clutching a brace of peacock feathers, which he had plucked from a fucking peacock by the side of the road. Well, the alternative was to keep driving until he got to a town that sold peacock feathers. Which, as I said, reminded me of Kevin Smith talking about Prince and the people who have to handle Prince saying to him, Prince, Prince, it's three o'clock in the morning in Minnesota. It's January, and you want a camel. That is not 
physically or psychologically possible. And Prince says, why? And she's, I'm like, what is he, being an asshole? And she's like, no, he's not malicious when he does it. He just doesn't understand why he can't get exactly what he wants. He doesn't understand why someone can't process a simple request, like a camel at three in the morning in Minnesota. Apparently, also, Brando had, uh, <laughs> had said that uh, he wanted to play the whole film all the way through, totally straight, and at the very end, he takes off his hat, and underneath... Where my head should be. Turns out I was a dolphin all along. Yeah, we're not doing that, Marlon. Why not? Because Dr. Moreau isn't a dolphin and you shouldn't have to have this Same way Jarrell is not a bagel. <laughs> is he obsessed with playing things that have holes in the middle? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's got to have a hole in the middle, otherwise I don't care. <laughs> this is the most outrageous spectacle I have ever witnessed. Look at yourself. I understand that I must be shocking to you. However, I must also point out that I have an allergy to the sun, and that's why I've put this medication on. Look at these people! Look at him! Cyborg! Mr. Douglas, I don't think that I have the intellectual ability to condensed 17 years of study and experiment into 17 minutes of explanation. So another rather important thing about this particular Dr. Moreau, he has a mini-me. As I mentioned before, mini-me comes from this film. As, of course, does South Park's Dr. Mephesto and his little helper, Kevin. Because when they were making the first ever season of South Park, this movie was just coming out. And for some reason, they got fixated on this Marlon Brando character. I have created things that will change the world for the better. For instance, here is a monkey with four asses. There's a little guy called uh, Magi. And uh, he was played by a, a, a guy called uh, Nelson De La Rosa. And I'm sorry to say that Nelson De La Rosa, uh, uh, while speaking Spanish, was black. So what they've effectively done is thrust him into whiteface, though not as white as Brando. Well, I presume that the idea is he's supposed to have been created from an animal. But it's entirely unclear what that animal might be. He's got claws that suggest he might have been a bird. Maybe. I always assumed that he was cloned from Marlon's back fat. <laughs> There's a reason why they sit, they dress the same and sit next to each other at the dinner table. And everyone, it's that same effect of when everyone's sitting around just trying to eat a meal and Dr. Evil and Minnie Me keep looking at them. <laughs> this, by the way, is not at all against short actors. I actually think that uh, uh, Nelson was, uh, you know, had, had quite a lot of screen presence, so much screen presence, that he took the attention from everyone else on the screen. But anyway, there's a scene where they both play Chopin, and Brando's at the grand piano playing, and Nelson is also at a smaller grand piano on top of this grand piano, and they're playing together. And it seems a risky move to hang so many jokes in the second Austin Powers movie on when no one saw this film. Also, there's no spin in Austin Powers 2. They don't change anything. It's just replication of the weirdness of this scene. Do you know what they could have done, though? There's a twist here. He could have turned out to be... The original Dr. Moreau. Moreau. Mm -hmm. And 
They cloned the, that big guy from my back fat. Well, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the, what's his name in Total Recall? Kuatu. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the leader of the He's just my host. Is the, is, yeah. But we became separated, and yeah, I keep him around because he amuses me. Also, side note, R.I.P.D. Vern Troyer this year. It's tough as hell, and Vern would have attested, to get roles when you're a short actor. And carnival freak shows like this make things worse. Brando starts to, you waffling on about the, the various experiments he's doing, and it would appear he is trying to engineer something pure. Would that make sense? It would, but again, his motives are fuzzy, to say the least. Because... If he was trying to engineer something pure, you would think that you would see some kind of progression of... Purity? Improvement in what he's making. Yeah, as opposed to, well, I did it with a boar, I did it with a monkey, I did exactly. it with this and dog man. Again, this is what I'm saying about the whole... If you've, if you've got a, a group of pigs living on the island. You try it with one pig, it doesn't go great. You try it with another pig, you improve it slightly. You try it with another pig, and it gets a little better. You try I totally expected pig. the pig. <laughs> Fifth pig into a bag. No way, piggy wiggy. Sixth pig into outer space. Seventh pig made out of jam. Then you play, whose pig is this? <laughs> that was like six Eddie Izzard things all clashing at once. It was, it was he like... does a lot with pigs. Le cochon is still a bonch. <laughs> How did he get up there? <laughs> the monkey helped him. I never know. He was a cheeky monkey. <laughs> I'm sorry, children, but pig and elephant DNA just won't splice. Haven't you ever heard that song by Loverboy? Which song is that? Pig and elephant DNA just won't splice. However, maybe I could help you add a few asses to that swine of yours. But if you do a warthog and it doesn't go well... Surely you try again and improve the warthog. You don't go, oh, I know, orangutan. It would appear that the real Dr. Moreau was just a slapdash and Absolutely. flighty as Brando himself. Also, I will say this. If you're trying to turn animals into people and you're using an orangutan, you are cheating. Yeah. True. True. Side note, by the way, we actually watched a, um, we watched two making of uh, documentaries recently. We watched Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, which just rolls off the tongue. But we also saw, for the first time ever, uh, Hearts of Darkness, the making of Apocalypse Now, uh, in which uh, Brando, again, doesn't come off very well, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola comes off like a total mob. Apocalypse Now, again, one of the most celebrated, beloved films of the 20th century. And everyone involved in that awful film, which I hate, deserves to be thoroughly spanked. Okay, I will say this. When you have the following elements, tyrannical director, yeah. Marlon Brando yeah. in a main role, surrounded by jungle. very unforgiving jungle. Yeah. A theme of craziness and some weird followers yep. who actually do go crazy in real life. And it would appear... That you learn precisely dick you're because so 20 years later you do the same thing again. Because you're so busy running round and round chasing your philosophical tail that you stop and forget what it is to be a human being, which is to go, what the fuck am I doing? That's what it is to be human, by the way. That's what separates us from animals. Although sometimes you get a clever dog going, what the 
fuck am I doing? <laughs> the dean had his seventh epiphany today, which has given me an epiphany of my own. The dean is a genius. He has to be. If he isn't, I've given almost two weeks of my life to an idiot. That is unacceptable. Therefore, the dean is a genius, and I will die protecting his vision. Are you by any chance familiar with Stockholm Syndrome? Is it something that the dean created? Because if not, I don't care. chasing his tail round and round and round and round then suddenly going oh, I'm really sorry about that that was yeah, daft right. <laughs> I know it's attached to me but I do it anyway <laughs> so Kilmer's there and he's already killed a rabbit and then he has the rabbit cooked for him and everyone goes nah, meat because <laughs> they're all supposed to be vegetarians oh yeah vegans like never mind the fact that in amongst this animal population You've got... A lot of carnivores. A hyena. Oh, yeah. A cheetah. Now you're teaching him to eat tofu. And Yeah, various other creatures that <coughs> are, as you say, very definitely carnivores. Yeah. And... Uh, Stick with the pigs. Kilmer and Brando lock eyes. And this is like the only time they're ever in the same room together. <laughs> because uh, they didn't like each other at all. Now... One note of sympathy for Brando, his daughter Cheyenne had apparently just died. So I can completely forgive him for being a little bit on the unreliable side at that point. Well, ultimately it puts him in the same boat as uh, Zack Snyder was when he was working on... But under those circumstances, uh, if you're contractually obligated, you turn up, you be... I'm not going to tell people what to do when they've lost a daughter. Under those circumstances, I honestly think, contractually obligated or not, he could have said... Now is not the time. Find someone else. And they'll just shut down the project. Yeah. That might have been better for everyone involved. Or even, how about we put everything on hold and we come back in a bit when you've dealt with all of this? Yeah, maybe. Forcing people to work when they're, you know, in the middle of grief, it's not worth it. Mm. It's a difficult thing to juggle because only the person who's grieving can know what they can handle and for some people work is actually their way of getting back to normality Mm. so that's the other thing as well you don't want to deny them that opportunity although all of the onset stories about brando don't speak of a man who is in the grip of grief they speak of a man who is being deeply unprofessional and fucking with everyone well yes which might just have been how he expressed grief but also if we're going to listen to superman and apocalypse now it's how he expressed everything Anyway, honestly, the motley crew of uh, half-man, half-animals that we've got here uh, do remind you more of a circus than a zoo. Does that make sense? Yes. Like It doesn't really feel like there's anything to do with nature for them there. They, they feel uh, like a, a lot of deformed people who I wanted to be given a decent chance of uh, survival and, and being able to form their own society rather than being bullied and shot at and preached to and lied. Mm, yeah. But there's, there's an episode of The Mighty Boosh... Mutants! ...patterned after the island of Dr Moreau and all of the creatures in that... Wear suits, yeah, and sing songs, yeah. And I couldn't stop those songs playing through my head throughout this entire film. Indeed, I, I mean, I struggled a bit with the '77 version, but that was a little bit more po-faced and, and legitimate. Quotation marks. I'm doing the finger quotes. Oh, we're in. Right, it's creepy in here. Right, okay, don't touch anything. All right. Sorry, yeah, don't touch anything else. Howard, what's that? Howard, in the corner, I can oh. see shapes. Oh. What are they? Oh, I don't know. Who's there? There's loads Who's of them. Who's there? Don't look at me. 
Who are you? We are mutants. Please keep away. We are ashamed. Don't, 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 be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Come don't into the light. Come on, it's okay. No, we are disgusting. We're trained professionals. We're zookeepers. We understand. Come. Come into the light. Don't be afraid. Okay, then. Okay. Oh, you're grotesque. Sorry. They're animals like us, okay? Oh, the shame. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. I promise that will be... We will not mock you anymore, please. Okay. Look, we're going to give you something now. Something that Bob Fossil can never take away from you. Your freedom. What is freedom? Freedom is a place. A place where you can dream. A place where you can run. A place without walls, without boundaries, without... Cups? No, there, there are cups. Oh, there are cups? Yes. I, I said cups. Shut up, no. I'm speaking to the human. Look, it's not about, you know... Cups. What else is there? Well, there's all things. Is there bacon? No, it's not about what there is and what there isn't, okay? What is bacon? Shut up! I'm speaking for you, mutant. It's not about that. It's an abstract concept. Well, then we'll have to take a meeting and take think a meeting. about it. I'm offering you your freedom, you ugly freaks. Oh, Sorry. So Mark Dacascus playing this leopard guy, Lomai, uh, he, did he kill an animal? Did he drink from a stream? Killing a rabbit. Killing a rabbit, right? Okay. Yes, or something. He gets shot in the head. They're they're punishing him, and Mark Dacascus shoots him in the head because he thinks that that's what. Not Mark Dacascus. Tamura Morrison is Azazello, a dog-like hybrid of Moro's son who is assigned to find the hybrids. He's the uh, arbiter of all the uh, extreme order in this film. He's effectively uh, General Fade in uh, the the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. He's this guy who get is way too into being this fascist bully boy. Mark Dacascus was Lomai, the leopard hybrid, who is accused of breaking the laws, sucking water from the stream, walking on all fours and eating flesh. Okay, he gets enough. then yes, he's he gets capped by the dog. Yes, they completely wasted Tamira Morrison, and they completely wasted Mark Dacascus. See also Ron Perlman. Now, there's a major character here called uh, Hyena Swine, who is part hyena, part swine. He's a vicious hyena-pig hybrid. Uh, he's played by Daniel Rigney. He is the cobra of this story. He's the one who questions, what am I? What are we? Father, I must ask question. What am I? A good father. Yet we are not like you. What? Are we? You are you are my children. You are all my children. See. Now I think perhaps it might be helpful if we would go over there and then we could discuss this and I could explain to you exactly. Now be calm, be calm, please be. I, I want to tell you something. Very important. I want to tell you something. Very important. Yeah, just, just everyone be calm and just relax and, and be seated if you want, please. Because, you see, one of the things that... Tell me. Uh, if we don't have laws... What can we do? And he's angry and confused, and he lashes out and commits atrocious acts of violence, but there's a sympathy to him. And it feels like Ron Perlman was absolutely right for this role. Like, he should have been 
hyena swine, but instead he was this sort of crusty old preacher. Who might understand what Moreau was trying to do. Perhaps they could develop a serum, stop the regression. No. No more scientists. No more laboratories, no more experiments. I thought you would be able to understand that. We have to be what we are. Not what the father tried to make us. And it feels like had he uh, he played the Cobra type, it would have been... And had they focused on what we actually really need for this story is a duality between two animals the more civilized one who wants people to hold to laws because he can see that it will keep them together and this one who's confused and wants to revert to a more chaotic life but also questions the idea that you know that if we take away all laws what are we then that's a great philosophical duel yes, to yes, have throughout is. the film. And, and it, it renders the humans there effectively just background. Well, like, as soon as your blue-eyed, blonde bloke turns up and like, witnesses this stuff, he can then fuck off and die. Effectively, Jason Clarke in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Because the far more interesting philosophical debate amongst the animal people mm. is going on now. Absolutely. And it, it, it brings in that kind of religious-level debate of... Are we really caught between angels and demons? Are we actually caught between angels and animals? But either way, it's an examination of the middle ground and what civilization represents in that, the beautiful lie that keeps us all going. And to this movie's credit, while it is confused as fuck and inconclusive, it does at least have that there from Stanley's original draft. It's sort of there. It, it kind of is. It ain't a Planet of the Apes, I'll tell you it right now. It kind of does, but it almost feels like there's there's all these philosophical theories and musings and, and moral questions that, and implications that are there in the guts of the original story. And it's like somebody's taken a bag of chicken feed representing all of these ideas and just, and just scattered it tipped everywhere. it everywhere and said... <laughs> Everybody help yourselves. That Some of this stuff becomes... It's apparent because it's there in the original text, but they do nothing with it. They explore nothing to any great depth. And they're at cross-purposes half the time just because it's this idea and then that idea and then Thewlis is ripping on them for this and that and the other and that contradicts what Moreau's doing but not in a kind of... that he's morally opposed to him sort of way. He, at one point starts, I, I can't even remember exactly what it was that he said, but he's sort of telling them off for doing something. And I'm like, when did that happen? Were they drinking from the stream or walking I, on all no, fours? No, 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 no. Well, no, this is the thing. Had Thulis a party without asking? go at them for any, kind, any of these arbitrary rules that Moreau laid down. We don't even know if Moreau did lay those rules down. Hmm. You know, they come up with, with religious iconography and, and ritual apparently on their own because Moreau doesn't seem to take any interest in, in steering them in any way. He's an absentee father figure. So, again, Moreau stands in for God. The animals are human beings. They're mm. questioning, why did you make me? Why do we have to follow these religious doctrine? What happens if we don't do that? Man destroys God. What then happens? Yeah. 
But again, in the 77 version, when man destroys God, they then have these the, the two opposing creatures, one who's trying to keep them civilised and one who wants to take them back to the jungle. So they had that in the 77 version. They do version. in the 77 version because the seer of the law actually has a concrete part, but Perlman takes no further part in proceedings... And you've just He's got not everyone's himself, focused no. on the hyena swine. And there's a lot of running around chasing the humans and the like. Feruza Bulk's Aisa, the more like the sexy girl. There's one woman in this whole film. One. There's a couple of female extras, but it's obviously this is a, a byproduct of the uh, you know the 19th century novels where women were deemed too silly for stories. But I'll say the same thing as I said with the original Planet of the Apes. If your intention is to recolonize, you need more birds. Yes. We'll find out what happens to her in just a bit. But the last half of this film is just a fight. It's chaos. And a mess. It's all over the place. So around about this point, Val Kilmer starts getting high, like really high. He's smoking joints left, right and centre. I'm sure I saw a a belt strap round his arm at one point. Mm. Brando is at this stage sitting, eating grass delicately with an ornately decorated silver African popcorn bucket on his head. And you pour ice into it and goes, oh, yes, that's the ticket. Yes, that's very nice. And again, I'm not sure whether that was Brando saying, how do you keep me cool while I'm performing this scene? Well, you put an ice bucket on my head and you fill it with ice, obviously. Or whether this is an affectation that he wanted Moreau to have. Yeah. It can't have been comfortable either way. So all of these animals, uh, animal men, have had uh, chips put in their arms that uh, uh, he Moreau himself con- carries a little control box that he can trigger to give them intense pain to keep control over them. And the uh, hyena swine asks, uh, at first, what am I? And then why do you make pain of us? We are your children. Like in the uh, seventy-seven version, they talk about the House of Pain. Mm. And they can. Did House of Pain know where they? <laughs> you see, I'm Irish, but I'm not a leprechaun. You wanna fight this step up, I'm get it on. You get a right to the grill. I'm white and I'm ill, a descendant of Dublin with Titanic skill. But the point of that is that the House of Pain is where the experiments on them are initiated. That's right. where he takes the animals in the cages and starts giving them the serum that initially transitioned them from being. Uh, animals which are unconscious of themselves and their state, mm. and they they m- cross that line into self-aware, conscious, human-like creatures. That's the pain they're talking about in that. The torture of going from I'm totally innocent and I I don't know. It's the it's the eating of the apple of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the pain they go from not knowing to knowing, and they don't want to go back there and feel that pain again. But if you put chips in their arms that give them electric shocks in order to control their behaviour, it completely undermines what Moreau is trying to do. If you're shocking them to make them do what you want them to do, you're not civilising them. You're not evolving them at all. It's an all island you're doing prison. is training them. Yeah. At best. Bad training as well. Bad People, training. We, we, you know, we, when we were tra- working out how to uh, deal with Indy, uh, we were looking at some people use electric dog collars so that, you know, you zap them when they do a bad thing. This treatment is despised by modern day dog trainers, myself included, who understand that the dog will respond a lot better to positive reinforcement than negative. That way the compulsion to do the thing they're asked comes from within rather than without. My father placed a lot of stock in the carrot and the stick. And I've grown up with a mistrust of authority. 
I mean, it uses the same behavioural principles. It's just that you're using a, a negative reinforcer instead of a positive reinforcer. But the problem with using negative reinforcers is that you can never be sure that if that negative reinforcer isn't there, if, say, for example, the zap collar falls off, yeah. the dog might avoid the thing it's not meant to do for a little while because it's concerned that the shock is going to come but if the shock ever doesn't come it suddenly realises hey there's no chains on me anymore so hyena swine and a bunch of other animals tear these uh, transmitters out of themselves and there you go and then Dr Moreau's like oh oh, oh, I'm just going to just press my box oh bollocks it doesn't work and then they kill him and I was like oh yeah tear him to shreds and at this point I wanted to see like Greg Nicotero uh, like Tom Savini that like they grab Brando's head and just start pulling and he's like oh no and then they pull out his intestines like proper zombie movie Shaun of the Dead yeah David getting pulled out of the Winchester because these are wild animal men and I'm like yeah fuck him up and they don't because it all just sort of happens off screen and I'm assuming Brando wasn't particularly interested in being in anything to do with prosthetics Indeed. that would uh, create a, a, a disgusting, terrible... And also, by this point, the second director, John Frankenheimer, had been doing the whole film and he had no interest in doing anything fun like that. Mm-hmm. I believe the UK DVD was cut to diminish the impact of this. If you See if you can find the uncut version of this death scene online. It's bloodier. It's still not the level of a zombie movie that I'm talking about. And it is questionable on my part to want to see this guy so horribly dismembered. But dismembered he is. This was a PG-13 or the equivalent in all territories. Although there is that uncut version with a few extra minutes of violence. It says there on the uh, certification guide, by the way, that there are some breasts in the film but they are more animal than human. The creature that's giving birth near the beginning, when they pull back the blanket, you see that it has six boobs. Like, they're not teats, like you would get on a a goat. They are boobs, full-on boobs. But looking at the picture that Richard Stanley drew in his um, visualisation artwork, (laughs) elegant, shapely boobs... You couldn't put that in a PG-13. They had to make them look very animal-like to get that past the year. Well, originally, it was only an $8 million um, production. And I think you could probably made a hard R, $8 million production and done this properly. Mm. Uh, and, and, like, had it be uh, have a sense of it being really wild. You can't get, like, really wild looking into the eye of chaos in a PG-13. Not really. Not really, because it scares people. You, if you have very human bodies with just, like, goat heads on, so that it looks well, like oh, he's doing it all by witchcraft. What The story you're telling here isn't suitable for children, so don't make it a PG-13 at all. That does seem a little bit strange. I can't think of any kids that would want to watch this film. No. <laughs> really not. Really not. Side note, by the way, on the the behavioural training aspect of it, you note that Moreau's children, finger quotes, the creatures that he's kept in his house and been kind to, and I would say that eat at his table, but I think at least two of them are mostly servants. But the point being that because he's reinforced them positively rather than negatively when everybody turns on him Mm. they defend him for the most part yeah 
So Kilmer, uh, now still left still alive, does Brando face, like turns up dressed as Dr. Moreau, gives the animals some uh, some drugs, and then Tamira Morrison, who's this faithful, uh, uh, you know, a- attack dog, turns up and goes, hey, how's it going? And then shoots him right in the head. So uh, he gets to uh, leave the movie uh, quick as well, leaving like most of the final third act to uh, David Thewlis and Furu's Bulk, uh, now being pursued by... Seemingly, he probably wasn't going to be the major villain of the story, but he totally is now. Tamira Morrison, Django fed himself. And honestly, like I think he's got one of the best um, makeup jobs. It's a little reminiscent of the kangaroo people in Tank Girl, but there's something about the fact that his dreads are lopsided, and then he holds his head in a certain way and struts about while you know wearing this um, uh, fairly smart, slightly raggedy suit. He seems to be really enjoying being this this uh, this vicious attack dog guy, and uh, he's again uh, probably the uh, the best physical performance in the film after Mark Dacascos' R.I.P.D. His character. Uh, so, like most of the rest of the film, is just like chases and action sequences, and they're all bad. Uh, but uh, the one woman, Aisa, gets cornered while they're down in a mine, I think. And so she, like, responds and goes, ah, and then attacks them as a cat and gets to put in the proper vampire teeth uh, at last. And she's been um, crying over the idea that she can't get to her serum because uh, much the same as the 1977 version, she's reversing, regressing, uh, reverting to uh, a cat. Mm. And she doesn't want to go back to being an animal. Yeah. And that's an interesting concept. And David Thewlis is like, you know, smashing around a lab, going, oh, I couldn't do this, I couldn't save you, I couldn't do this, that, and the other. And she stares at him in a way that I, I feel like Thruzabot was thinking, you've somehow made this all about you. Single, you know, white man on the island apart from the now dead uh, Val Kilmer. What? That Yeah, he starts off on this... this- Tirade about I thought they saved me, but they brought me here to take my life. And I'm like, dude, you're alive. They haven't done anything to you. They have done less to you than they did to Michael York because they were giving him yeah, they, make me an animal serum secretly. They turned him into a werewolf. Yeah. Uh, and he was running around with big sideburns, going, oh no. But it didn't. Again, it didn't hold because he was still thinking like a human. Yeah. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand Walking through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fooks Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein So they get into a fight, and she fends, for, fends them off, and then Tamira Morrison ties a rope round her neck and kicks her off a thing, hanging her. The only woman in the film, and she gets hanged. And I was like, fuck's sake, does that happen in the book? Oh, she's not even in the book. Does that happen in the 30s version? Probably not. Does that happen in the 70s version? No, she gets off the island with him and then he has to decide between that and the other. So this creation of the movies, they, they hanged her. And I'm like, well, maybe in Richard's original vision of this, uh, they, uh, you know, maybe she'd have uh, had her own life and her own, own agency and gotten off the island or, or, or gone into the island or become a leader or something like that. And it's like, no, they killed her in his original version and they cut her up, cooked her and ate her. 
Fedder to David Thewlis, they did. Right. Both of those versions, while I am not condoning either of them, both of them do carry the connotation of looking more deeply at supposedly civilised acts because the character that Tamira Morrison has been playing has been committing executions, Mm -hmm. which are a human thing. Yeah. They're terrible and they are a human thing. And specifically, so far, he's been using guns. Mm. But hanging is obviously... That's a human thing. An execution human thing. And also, what was her crime? Because if it was behaving too much like a human, cooking her is somewhat ironic. Exactly. And, And again, if they are going to shred her animalistically, that's one thing. If they cook her, that indicates how civilized they actually are, inverted commas. So it's this kind of, you know, the... You look from the animals to the man, you can't tell the difference anymore thing. If they were doing it intentionally, which I have zero faith that they were. So there's a chaotic finale and hyena swine that I mentioned before is like holding them at gunpoint. And eventually David Thewlis gets the gun off him and he runs left and then he runs right and he's cornered by other animals. And then he just wanders into a burning building and goes, Father! And then the building burns down, and David Thewlis has a word with the priest. Douglas, speak, priest! And it's a very heavy-handed coda, because he makes a raft, and then he bids farewell to uh, the the priest and uh, Assassiman, whose uh, voice was Frank Welker. We got Welkered in this. And, uh, and there were so many animals in this, I would have been astounded if Frank Welker did not turn up somewhere. I'm amazed he didn't do all of them. But... uh, what? There's a version of this film somewhere where Frank Welker does all the voices, including Moreau and Douglas and Montgomery and Aisa. Yes, I'm searching for something that's pure. He goes back to the world of humans with fear in his heart. And that's the end of the film. And it's disappointing. And it feels like it was going to go somewhere else. And it didn't. So what the hell happened? You may be asking of this one. What what, what the hell happened? Well, Richard Stanley, when he was uh, uh, in the original scripting stage and just courting New Line, like I said, he got Brando on side. But I didn't tell you how he got Brando on side. He got Brando on side by going to the warlock that I mentioned earlier. He knows a warlock named Skip. Or he knew a warlock named Skip. I don't know if the warlock's still alive anymore. And he asked Worth Skip... Worth noting that Skip was not his warlock name. Oh, and a longer, fancier name, I'm sure. He was, his real name was Edward James Featherstone, commonly known as Skip. How much work has Edward James Featherstone got off the back of this? Please tell me it's lots. 
So anyway, uh, Richard said to, to Skip, uh, I really need to convince Marlon Brando, can you do any magic to help me? And Skip went down to his basement, went to his altar, cut himself to do some blood magic, and did an incantation. And that convinced Marlon Brando to say yes on the deal. Uh, but the plot thickens, because later on, uh, when everything started to go wrong, Skip contracted bonitis and uh, had severe problems with his legs and had to go to hospital and at that exact point everything that Skip had done came undone and Brando started not liking the project. Richard Stanley's mum's house was struck by lightning. Two fireballs ran through the living room. The neighbours said they saw a hyena in the street. And, and yeah, it would appear that the magic uh, was uh, weakened and reversed. And, and, and that exact point was uh, uh, when uh, the film started to go really tits up. See, Stanley had real trouble corralling everyone he was he had this australian team uh, they were in a very very hot place uh, the location of the hotels was 50 minutes away from the actual location of the uh, the island set that they had uh, elected to uh, film in and so it took ages for everyone to get out there every day apparently from the sounds of it he wasn't like stanley wasn't there long he uh, he did some scenes. He uh, was seen shuffling around the place, smoking cigarettes nervously, uh, saying, I had to be seen to be filming all, all the time. He clashed with New Line immediately. And uh, there were reports that uh, after a very hot, long day of work, he climbed up a tree and wouldn't come down. Uh, Farooza Bulk, who played a uh, vehemently defended uh, uh, Richard Stanley and said that that was bullshit... Uh, but yeah, she said, you know, at the end of the day, when you're really, really hot, the last place you want to be is stuck up a tree, unable to go and get a drink. That makes which sense. makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to actually do now is is read you the production from uh, Wikipedia on the internet ticker because it's just some of it is insane. We'll pepper it with other stuff, but uh, but here's the bulk of what you need to know about this film. Uh, and you, I, I also thoroughly recommend watching the uh, the documentary on Lost Souls. It's um, it, it's it's entertaining. It's frank. It feels like the sausage factory of movie making. Like you really don't want to know this, or at least Hollywood doesn't want you to know this stuff. When they do their glitz and glamour at the Oscars every year, they pray you don't watch things like this because you find out how fucking horrible it, uh, it is sometimes to make a film. <clears throat> the chaotic events of the making of the film quickly led to it becoming one of the most difficult and troubled productions in Hollywood history. A film version of Dr. Moreau had long been a dream of uh, Richard Stanley, as we said, who first read the book as a child. He spent four years developing the project before getting the green light from New Line Cinema. By developing the project, we mean he drew lots of twisted, weird pictures. Although, hey, it worked for... Um, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Yeah. It's rare that I do this, but I'm putting a warning here. The tone of this podcast is about to shift from wry and sardonic to dark and wild, with some pretty disturbing sexual situations mentioned. Just prepare yourself. We're going from the first half of Boogie Nights to the second half. Oh, and we should cover Boogie Nights. Although Stanley had envisaged Jürgen Prochnow in the lead role as Dr. Moreau, he wouldn't have been bad, actually. Um, New Line managed to secure Marlon Brando. I feel like Prochnow would have been more professional, don't you? 
Uh, but sometime later, Stanley learned that New Line had gone behind his back and offered the movie to director Roman Polanski, the one who anally raped a 13-year-old girl. So, yeah, studio New Line Bob Shea, very pally with Roman Polanski. Furious, Stanley demanded a meeting with Brando, who's unexpectedly proved very sympathetic to Stanley's vision. But it's because of the spell, the spell that Skip cast. Not least because of Stanley's intimate understanding of the novel and its history, including its connections with Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Dark- Heart of Darkness, the main inspiration for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, and because of Stanley's own family relation to legendary African explorer Henry Morton Stanley. According to Stanley, Brando was still fascinated with Kurtz more than 15 years after he had played a version of the character in Coppola's film. But you will know all that. With Brando supporting him, Stanley was confirmed as director and he was able to recruit two more major stars, Bruce Willis as Edward Prendick. So before it was the guy from Northern Exposure, and before it was Val Kilmer, it was Bruce Willis, another prima donna who's difficult to work with. Uh, So he was a UN negotiator who washes up on Moreau's Island after his plane crashes. And James Woods. Now, I would say that James Woods proved himself to be a complete dickhead later in life, but he was probably a dickhead then. We just didn't know about it because no Twitter. As Montgomery, Moreau's chief assistant. Buoyed by these developments, Stanley enthusiastically launched into pre-production, collaborating with special effects creator Stan the Man Winston on the creation of makeup and costumes for Moreau's hybrid creatures and preparing the location and sets. However, as the time for principal photography approached, problems began to multiply. Bruce Willis dropped out of the film. Stanley says in Lost Soul that the actor was divorcing his wife Demi Moore. So all of these family problems were going on at the same time. Uh, But the couple did not announce separation until the summer of 98. The divorce made the final two years later and was replaced with Val Kilmer, who, to Stanley's dismay, demanded a 40% reduction in the number of days he was required on set. So I'll do it, but I want to be here 40% less of the time. Why? Stanley solved the problem when he had the idea to switch Kilmer from the protagonist to the supporting role of Montgomery. So that's great, Val. You just turn up for this short amount of time that you'll allow us, and you can be Montgomery. And you cannot give a fuck about it while you're here. And you can look thoroughly bored and pissed off with everyone. There was a point where he said to uh, one of the uh, supporting cast, Hey, hey, how's it going, man? You know, if it ever comes down to a case of me or you, it's going to be me. And the guy was like, All right, Val, it'll be you. Like, that's such a weird, aggressive thing to say. He also tried to burn someone with his cigarette on camera while they were filming. Good chap. On a side note, I'm sure Kilmer was going through some serious shit at the time, and I'm sure he's a lot nicer than he's coming off as here. I like to believe the best about people. This is shitty behavior, though, as I'm sure he'd uh, attest himself in retrospect. However, this meant James Woods had to leave production. New Line hurriedly recruited former Northern Exposure star Rob Morrow for the lead role. Another significant setback occurring not long before filming began with the suicide of Brando's daughter Cheyenne. The devastated star retreated to his private island, leaving Stanley and his producers in limbo, not knowing when or even if he would show up. So that was it. His grieving process was him retreating to his private island. The chosen location for the film was the rainforest outside Cairns in North Queensland, Australia. Tensions between Stanley and Newland had been growing during pre-production, partly because of Stanley's quirky, insular nature and his markedly un- unwillingness to attend studio meetings. That is fucking death if you're a director. If you won't turn up to meetings, they will fucking fire your ass. But they reached crisis point within the first few days of filming. Stanley's vulnerability to studio pressure was exacerbated by the continuing absence of his main ally, Brando. So Brando's the only reason he's there and he's not here but the biggest problem proved to be the notorious onset behavior of Kilmer who reportedly arrived on set two days late so what are you filming at this point 
Well, they weren't. That was the problem. Because, I mean, at that stage, you've still got the guy from Northern Exposure as your lead. So I'm going to guess not much of anything that Stanley filmed made it into the final version. Kilmer later attributed his obnoxious behaviour to the fact that he was, just as filming began, he learned from a television report he was being sued for divorce by his wife for seven years, Joanne Wally. Whatever his reasons, many of the cast and crew have testified to Kilmer's bullying in his consistently hostile and obtrusive manner during the first days of shooting. He would not deliver the dialogue as scripted and repeatedly criticised Stanley's ideas and what little footage was shot was deemed unusable. Ugh. The studio mainly seems to have blamed the director for not getting Kilmer under control, but another significant factor was the sudden departure of co-star Rob Morrow on the second day of shooting. Was he eaten by a shark? Within, with the location being pounded by bad weather that had temporarily stopped filming, Morrow found himself unable to bear the tension and hostility on set any longer, so he telephoned New, New Line chairman Bob Shea in Hollywood and tearfully begged to be let go. Shea agreed. After a third day of filming, following emergency consultation with on-set executives, New Line abruptly fired Stanley by fax. Gutless turds. Did they send in that one that uh, the JIT sent Marty? You are terminated! Terminated? No! No! It wasn't my fault, sir! It was Needles! Needles was behind and the whole you thing! you cooperated! No, I did! It uh, was a sting operation! I was, I was, I was setting them up! Read my No! Facts. Please! No! I cannot be fired! I'm fired! Ah! The beleaguered director reacted angrily, shredding documents in revenge, and then vanishing after being delivered to the airport for the return flight to Hollywood. So. The driver drove him to the airport. He was supposed to get on a plane. Later reports showed he did not get on that plane. Keep that one in mind, folks. The reason for Stanley's dismissal were not made clear, and false rumours were spread about his allegedly erratic behaviour, but the main reasons appear to have been his perceived unwillingness to deal with studio executives, and especially his problems in dealing with Kilmer, who already, whose already well-established reputation for being difficult was soon to be enshrined in movie lore, thanks to this film. This is words on, on the internet ticker here, folks. Stanley had been offered his full fee on contract that he left the production quickly and did not speak about his sacking. So, like, we'll pay you everything, just fuck off and shush. So his disappearance caused consternation for New Line, who feared he might be trying to sabotage the filming. His removal also predictably sent shockwaves through the cast and crew, outraging female lead Faruza Balk, who seems to really like him, and she speaks very highly of him in the documentary. She stormed off the set after a heated exchange with the New Line executives, and then had a production assistant drive her all the way from Cairns to Sydney, a distance of some 2,500 kilometres, in a rented limousine. However, by her own account, Balk's agent then warned her in blunt terms that the studio would ruin her and that she would never work in films again if she broke her contract, so she was soon forced to return to the set. Like I said, not a day's filming had taken place between the guy from Northern Exposure leaving and Feruza Bolt leaving. So it's good for the goose, but not for the gander. No, well, this is the thing. For an actress to get a reputation for being difficult to work with... Marilyn Monroe had no problems. Oh, I'm pretty sure she had problems. Oh, yeah. But... Marilyn Monroe right. had loads of problems. She's, She's venerated. She's proves the rule. Yeah. We know how many women's careers were abruptly arrested, shall we say, purely because they refused to give somebody a blowjob. Yeah. If and you don't yet, do this, I'll get Roman Polanski. And yet, Val Kilmer gets to get away with whatever he got away with, and all he gets is a bad reputation, but he still keeps getting hired. He don't give a damn about a bad reputation. So it would appear. Also, I suppose he's not really being hired for much anymore. So. With the budget now approaching $70 million, bearing in mind it was originally slated to be $8 million. New line of shit at this, aren't they? They really are shit at this. Just get yourself a budget sheet and stick to it, guys. How difficult is that? 
they they don't understand what sunk costs are. As in, like, the, the, sometimes if you throw eight million in, but you're looking at 62 more million, you just go, you know what? Let's just write that eight million We're off. Done. We're, We're done. done guys. We are fucking done. We'll claim back as much as we can on insurance. That was the honor Dr. Moreau, everyone. They had an out. Do you know what? They could have said to Feruza Bolk, okay, you walk. We'll, we'll be really we'll cross with you. A little bit. But we'll speak highly of you in meetings. But we'll use the insurance on the basis that you ran off. We couldn't possibly make this film without you. Nah, they're throw under the bus. You know Bob Shea and company. With a budget now approaching $70 million and a potential disaster looming. Potential? When does it become a disaster? <laughs> New Line bought in veteran director, and here's number two, folks. John Frankenheimer, director of The Mancurian Candidate, and after this, Ronin and Reindeer Games. He came on board in part... Now immortalised, by the way, hmm? because of Avengers. Your move, Reindeer Games. He came on board in part because, like, virtually every... I don't think he was referencing the film. It was to do with they wouldn't let Paul Rudolph join in any reindeer games. Ben Affleck doesn't have antlers in that film. Does he not? No, he's just a bank robber. I feel like he should. He sh- well, he would have made it a better film, John Frankenheimer. <laughs> R.I.P.D., John Frankenheimer. He came on board in part because, like virtually every member of the cast and crew, he wanted the opportunity to work with the legendary Brando. Why? Why do you want to work Look with this guy? Look he's legendary I was thinking I could play this whole thing like a hula hoop. <laughs> Do you know what's the saddest thing? Brando died a few years ago, like 2005. He will never get to play Donald Trump. And it feels like that's the role of a lifetime for him. The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese. Brando as Trump, folks. Could have happened. But he also used the studio's desperation to his advantage, successfully demanding a hefty fee and a three-picture deal in exchange for his services. A hefty ransom? See, that's the thing. He's like, oh, you, you really want it, huh? Did you uh, call Roman Polanski? Oh, he didn't want to do it. Not allowed to leave France, apparently. Okay, well, I might do it. As long as you can give me a three-picture deal. No, not a Nightmare on Elm Street film. <laughs> and a big pile of money. Once again, Marlon Brando uh, died in 2004, eight years after this film, at the age of 80. Uh, The Score was his last actual film, and that had uh, De Niro in it, and Edward Norton. Before that, he was in a film called Free Money. I deserve free money! And uh, Dr. Moreau was like one of his last films, actually. One, two, three, four, fourth to last. Uh, He was, before that, he was in Don Juan de Marco. Uh, Divine Rapture, The Freshman, A Dry White Season, The Formula, Apocalypse Now in 79, Superman, he was Jarrell, Last Tango in Paris. Did you see what that said? Widely considers the greatest movie actor of all time. Anyway, Frankenheimer secured a three-picture deal in exchange for his services. Uh, well known as uh, the one of the last of the old-style Hollywood directors... Ugh. Frankenheimer's gruff directorial approach was radically different from he Stanley's. He was a shouty bastard who had a go at everyone. That's that's different from Stanley's. Gruff directorial. So if you imagine Stanley was sort of like um, uh, meekly shuffling around the island, saying like, "Could we maybe uh, do some filming?" Frankenheimer was marching around, going, "Get in the fucking room over there! We're gonna do some fucking shooting." And he soon alienated many of the cast and crew. He and Brando decided to have the then-current script by Richard Stanley, Michael Hare and Wallen Green, rewritten by uh, Frankenheimer's previous collaborator, Ron Hutchinson. 
Frank and Irma also needed to find a new lead actor to replace Rob Morrow and brought in David Thewlis to play Douglas. The whole production was shut down for a week and a half while these changes were implemented. It doesn't matter, you're going to be here for five and a half more months. However, once shooting resumed, the problems continued and escalated. Brando routinely spent hours in his air-conditioned trailer where he was supposed to be on camera while actors and extras sweltered in the tropical heat in full makeup and heavy costumes. The antipathy between Brando and Kilmer rapidly escalated into open hostility. This resulted in the cast and crew being kept waiting for hours with each actor refusing to come out of their respective trailers before the other one. So Brando won't come out before Val and Val won't come out before Brando. It's like chicken and I can't blink first. And then the entire set and crew and cast go, we don't give a fuck, come out at the same time. Set your grotesquely engorged egos aside for the sake of the crew. We're fucking hot. Put spiders in their trailers. Do you know what? Everybody should have just lined up behind the trailers and pushed them over. Yeah, and then... There! Now you're out! Uh, New pages were turned in only a few days before they were shot. Frankenheimer and Kilmer had an argument on set which reportedly got so heated that Frankenheimer stated afterwards, I don't like Val Kilmer. I don't like his work ethic and I don't want to be associated with him ever again. I believe he actually specifically said, if I was making a film about the life of Val Kilmer, I wouldn't want that fucker anywhere near it. According to Thewlis, we all had different ideas of where it should go. I even ended up improvising some of the main scenes with Marlon. Thewlis went on to rewrite his character personally. He had to. They didn't have any scripts. Some bugger had to do it. The constant rewrites also got on Brando's nerves, and as on the many previous productions, he refused to learn lines. So he was equipped with a small radio receiver so that his assistant could feed his lines to him as he performed, a technique he had used in earlier films. Because he didn't give a fuck, people. The greatest actor ever gives a fuck. It wasn't him. Another venerated actor springs to mind. Johnny Depp, Brando's co-star in Don Juan de Marco, who also had to have his lines fed to him on Pirates of the Caribbean 5 because he didn't give a fuck. Thewlis recollects, Marlon would be in the middle of a scene and suddenly he's picking up police messages and he would repeat, There's a robbery at Woolworths. Meanwhile, friction between him and Kilber elicited the former's quip, Your problem is you confuse the size of your paycheck with the size of your talent. Upon completion of Kilmer's final scene, Frankenheimer is reported to have said to the crew, Now get that bastard off my set! Stanley had reportedly jokingly told the film's production designer to burn the set down, but when Stanley disappeared after his sacking, security was tightened in case he was actually trying to sabotage the project. Stanley himself later revealed that he had in fact stayed in Australia, suffering a total emotional breakdown. That's not funny at all. Uh, He had retreated to a remote area in the Cairns region to recover. There he entirely by chance happened upon the set of the film. I'll stop you there. There's a giant map of Australia in the uh, documentary, and if you look just in the top, just in the top, top southeast corner, there's a little tiny purple region called Cairns, and this enormous fucking island. You just happen to go within a stone's throw away of the uh, set of this film. There was a part of his leaving. There was an injunction, I believe, that he had to be forty, 40 yards, kilometers, bloody hell, from. The yeah, if he wanted to get paid. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess he took himself to 41 kilometres. I would guess so tent. too. 
He had a chance meeting, in quotes, uh, with some of the film's former production staff. Former production staff who had been rehired as extras and were camping in the area. It was confirmed by the same production staff in the Lost Cold Souls documentary that with their help, Stanley secretly came back to the set over several days, disguised in full costume as one of the dogmen, and performed as an extra on the film he had originally been hired to direct. If you watch the film very carefully and you know who you're looking for, you can see the dog boy hanging around in the background. It has also been reported that he showed up at the film's rap party where he ran into Kilmer, who was said to have apologised profusely for Stanley's removal from the film. Well, that's a bit nice from Kilmer. You know, maybe he learned his lesson. And on that day, the Kilmer's heart grew three sizes too big. This is not the sort of thing normal people do, coming back to the set dressed as a dog. Pretend, like, especially when you've been told you will get money if you go away and be quiet. Did he go for the hat trick and turn up in dog boy costume at the premiere? I would hope. I could only imagine. But at the same time, I kind of admire his chutzpah and his, like, let's just do it. Just embracing the crazy. And from the sounds of it, these extras in the woods were going fucking mental like they were they were doing drugs and sex and rock and roll dressed as dog boys it was a bacchanalia it's worth noting by the way that drugs sex and rock and roll was what they were doing before they were hired to come and be extras yeah. on this movie they, really they just went off and did the same exact thing yeah but in animal on costumes. location <laughs> getting paid for apparently quite a high mark as well Indeed. for six months mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, ev- apparently everyone's hotel room just started filling up with stuff, including a scale electric track, and everyone's hotel room became a different place to go and play and fuck. So it was effectively that they, they drew the parallel with that this was much the same as the chaos on the island of Dr. Moreau. It had become this uh, ungoverned, lawless land where everyone just went crazy, and clearly Frankenheimer only cared about just getting what was immediately in front of his face done. He didn't really care about the health, safety, well-being, mental acuity of his uh, extras or cast or crew. He's the cruel man I mentioned earlier, not Stanley Frankenheimer. And it is a great shame that in all of this revelry that was going on. Brando wasn't involved? No, no, not Brando. I've just, I've got this vision of Ron Perlman in his Sayer of the Law role, stood at the top of the room with his arms folded, going, right! It's your own time you're wasting. Let's get this place tidied up. We've got work. One shall not talk massive fatties. Due to the many problems with the production and the evident ongoing attempts by both Brando and Kilmer to sabotage it, they were worried about Stanley. It was their fucking prissy little leads that were doing it. The location shooting eventually stretched from a scheduled six weeks to almost six months, and the atmosphere in the production became almost a mirror of the plot of the movie, with the long-suffering cast and crew becoming more and more alienated by and hostile towards its wayward co-stars and their authoritarian director, whom they failed to tear to shreds in an animalistic orgy of violence. Here's a final thought to leave you with, and hopefully it will hold back some of the defense of Brando and give everyone pause for thought. I've disliked this guy intensely since I saw Last Tango in Paris as a teenager. Let me read you an extract from a Vox article on exactly why. Marlon Brando's character Paul rapes actress Maria Schneider's character Jean using a stick of butter as lubricant. In a 2007 interview with the Daily Mail, Schneider said the scene wasn't in the original script and that Brando and Bertolucci had told her about it just before they began filming. 
The scene is intended to be violent and disturbing, with Paul hitting Jean and penetrating her anally as she cries. But as Schneider made clear, the feelings of violation we see on screen aren't just acting, they're real. I was so angry, she said. I felt humiliated, and to be honest, I felt a little raped, both by Marlon and by Bertolucci. The scene became the target of renewed scrutiny beginning in 2016 when a 2013 video clip in which Bertolucci discusses the film went viral. The director acknowledged that he had sprung the butter detail on Schneider at the last minute because he wanted her on-screen humiliation. Because he wanted her on-screen humiliation and rage to be real. I wanted Maria to feel not to act, he said. Brando didn't actually penetrate Schneider in the scene, but it was an incident of real sexual humiliation nonetheless. And in a time of reckoning around sexual misconduct, misogyny and abuse of power in Hollywood, it deserves to be remembered as part of his legacy. Bertolucci argued that it was necessary to humiliate Schneider in order to make his film. But that argument reveals a fundamental inequity that the Me Too movement is only beginning to expose. In Hollywood, some people, most of them men, have the power to decide what makes great art and who deserves to get hurt in order to create it. Maria Schneider died in 2011 of cancer, but spoke publicly about the scene in 2007. I should have called my agent or had my lawyer come to the set because you can't force someone to do something that isn't in the script, but at the time, I didn't know that, she added. Schneider said that Brando did not apologize to her after the scene, but that they had a close relationship in general and remained friends after shooting was finished. The actress also said she felt manipulated by Bertolucci throughout the filming of Last Tango and that the public reaction to the film, which earned both acclaim and criticism for its explicit sexual content, sent her into a tailspin. People thought I was like the girl in the movie, but that wasn't me, she explained. I felt very sad because I was treated like a sex symbol, I wanted to be recognized as an actress, and the whole scandal and aftermath of the film turned me a little crazy, and I had a breakdown. She added that she abused drugs and attempted suicide, but eventually got clean in 1980 after meeting her long-term partner, whom she did not name. Schneider died of cancer in 2011. The director said he felt guilty for the way he had treated Schneider, but did not regret it. As a filmmaker, he said, You have to be completely free. Their accounts of that event are strikingly similar, which isn't often the case when it comes to sexual misconduct, and thus they are as clear an illustration as any of the fact that in Hollywood, as in the wider world, some people have always been freer than others. End of Vox. And that's what came off the island of Dr. Moreau in waves for me. The abuse of inequality and a hierarchy that protects those at the top and leaves those lower down horribly vulnerable. Bertolucci was protected his whole life and died last year without ever having to face the music. The child rapist Polanski hides in France to avoid justice, though he did get the Best Director Academy Award for the Pianist. And New Line producer Bob Shea wanted him to direct Moreau. Brando never really had to account for his part in the last tango abuse 
that went on. His daughter having just committed suicide before Moreau is a genuine tragedy, but nothing excuses hiding in your air-conditioned trailer while the cast and crew cook in the sun for months on end. The same for Kilmer, throwing his petulant hissy fit. Getting divorced does not give you license to place your ego above the health and safety of dozens of exasperated professionals. Frankenheimer behaved tyrannically and can't even claim he got the job done well or even quickly. Poor, inexperienced Richard Stanley found out firsthand how cruel the industry could be, how ready it is to throw creators under the bus in the pretense of saving face. And his ally, Feruza Bulk, learned that the footing afforded to her standpoint was unequal to that of her relatively unknown male co-star. The history of film is littered with these tyrannical egos that all too often trample on those who have little power and cannot change their situation without throwing away their career. This still happens today, but fortunately there are fewer places to hide. The lights are brighter and we record and remember this shit behaviour. On the Patreon this week, if you're at the $5 level or higher, you get our 45-minute quick review of Brightburn. Right, okay, okay. So he's had a very stable, happy, not weird at all childhood up to Mm. a certain age, and then all of a sudden... Uh, and the the thing that changes, he's trying to um, get the mower started, mm-hmm. and then he like pulls it really hard and throws the mower half a mile away, okay. and then he approaches the mower and it's spinning and spinning and spinning, and then he puts his hand in and like clang clangs the blade, mm-hmm. and then looks at his hands and a kind of oh I'm incredibly powerful, and after that he's a dead-eyed psychopath. Right. Okay. So he literally goes from being a perfectly normal kid who presumably has had all the perfectly normal kid scrapes and scratches to indicate that there's nothing weird about it. He hasn't had scrapes and scratches. Halfway through the film, David Denman says he's never bled in his entire life. But I'm assuming he's fallen over and bumped his head. When he falls over and bumps his head later, he registers pain. Right. Or at least embarrassment. So he's got to age... Uh, Bear in mind, by the way, this is exactly the same for Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so a huge thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Brian Novak, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lukes, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Ungiers, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. So uh, there were a couple of things that we wanted to finish on. One, you suggested this should have been a graphic novel in the 90s. Richard Stanley did so much. I mean, it's not to my taste, but the artwork that he did when he was in pre-production, 
is really beautiful in its own way. He obviously had some great ideas about how he wanted it to look. It didn't look anything like that in the end. Yeah. Um, and it obviously meant a great deal to him. And if he'd done it as a graphic novel, then he would have had full control over it. It would have cost a fraction of what it ended up costing, and it wouldn't have destroyed him. Yeah. And it would have been the graphic novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, by Richard Stanley, yeah. who's also a movie director who would carry on doing little Which films. Which eventually, I'm pretty certain somebody would have decided to make into a film. This is a, the storyboard's already there. This is a recurring thing in Hollywood, though. You'll get a, a, a small-time director, well, small-time, like an indie director who's done something impressive and is good in one meeting and gets put in a place of, uh, of far too much power, can't handle it or is shat upon from above and it practically destroys them and sometimes it's their fault sometimes it's other people's faults it's sad either way because ultimately if they they wouldn't have got there unless they had some level of talent Mm. and it it feels like a waste because a lot of the time they never work again in the case of Richard Stanley, he hardly did anything big again. He did very, very small little projects. Yeah. Although it's it's jury's out on whether that's because the Hollywood system broke him and he didn't want to be involved in it anymore, or the Hollywood system didn't want to be involved with him anymore. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, ultimately, his response should have been, well, you try corralling Marlon Brando, who, by the way, wouldn't show up, and Val Kilmer, who would, but was late, and an asshole. This also reminded me of a little, a little bit, and is clearly inspiration uh, for. Do you remember I am not an animal episode selection? I said oh my God, episode yes. selection. Oh, twice. Yes. It's a weirdly uh, animated, like cutout thing. It's a British comedy, I believe, made by Baby Cow Productions. That's uh, Steve Coogan's. And I don't know if it got more than one um, season, but it's a bunch of animals escape from a vivisection lab and they um, shack up in a house in the English countryside and try to live like people. It's quirky and it's kind of funny and it's got some fantastic talent in there, like Simon Pegg and Rebecca Front and uh, Kevin Eldon. And Steve Coogan and Amelia Bullmore and Julia Davis. And it's weird and dark and quirky and, and funny. And, and ultimately, it's a, a story about animals trying to be people. And it feels more pure, more innocent, and at the same time more savvy than any version of Dr. Moreau we've seen. The other thing it reminded me of was Bioshock. Right, that's what I was thinking of when I said about the, the very human torsos with just animal heads on yeah. them. Yeah, it's like the the, uh, the the deformities of the people of Rapture who tried to make themselves look beautiful but have gone over the top with it. And they're the ones to, to blame in this case rather than the, um, the, the animals in this who were effectively taken by a human, twisted and ravaged. They are presided over by this I'm Andrew Ryan style overlord and eventually he is destroyed by his own machinations. Yeah. And he imposes laws on them, which he does not hold himself to. Yeah. And it's a utopia that is based on his ideals, and they crumble in, 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 the, in the face of the savagery at the heart of... Uh, in this case, these, is a, these animals are a parallel for men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't make systems work if you're cruel to people. Not over time. Cruelty will work for a while, but eventually you got revolution. And if you are going to make it work, you better have some really good television or some other opiate to keep them fixated because religion in this case did not work enough for them. No, no. You have to keep people just content enough. Yeah. The goat priest was not fascinating enough. He didn't frighten them enough. Mm. You also had a theory that Bojack Horseman is 
a kind of a it's the modern day version of what if this had actually happened in 1896 and yeah. then the animals then the got animals off the goes. island and went to LA yeah absolutely and continued to evolve and breed with humans and this is what we ended mm. up with so my final question to you is that not if but when this becomes an ongoing long-form tv show you're, you're turning your lip up but like it's gonna happen they're going to do it again. Sooner or later, mankind will come around to the idea that they can make Dr. Moreau better. So what are they going to do? What's, what's the only way this is going to work? Well, I initially said that it only really works in a very modern context if you combine it with AI. And you pointed out that they already have. Yeah, Westworld. Effectively, as a long-form TV show, Westworld is all of these concepts just with robots. So really, whoever's doing Dr. Moreau, they have to very much be focusing on the animal side of humans mm. and, uh, you know, putting the animal side at war with the civilized side. And that's the bent of the TV show. But here's the thing. We've already worked out that if the human side and the animal side of humankind are at war with each other... We're fucked as a species. Mm. Part of our inability to take care of ourselves at the moment is because we refute that we have an animal side, because we deny that we have physical flesh and bone bodies that need to be looked after, needs and urges that need to be not necessarily wildly indulged, but certainly not squashed under a big religion-shaped stone and ignored, because they will then crack and bad things will happen. And this was the other thing that I meant about you, you kind of have to set it in the late 1800s because the, the further you get past Freud and Jung and any kind of psychological evolution, the more the argument makes no sense anymore. Yeah. Wells didn't have that much of a handle on it back then. Mm. I think he'd be frankly surprised. He'd be like, seriously, th this is still being talked about? 122 years later? I mean, if you want to. I prefer War of the Worlds myself. But uh... <laughs> We're still debating this? But yeah, I think, I think Westworld actually does a pretty good job of exploring that idea of you had something that you thought was lesser than you and you tried to improve it and then you got to a point where you went, shit, I've improved it too much. I now can't do the thing with it that I intended to do in the first place. Or at least I can, but it'll bite me. Yeah. I can see it being a proper thing. I can definitely see it, if it's on HBO, being about animal sex. Like, the, the idea of, like, do you want to fuck a gorilla? This is the show where you can imagine fucking a gorilla. Bruno Mars will be well up for that. He can also provide a soundtrack, because, by the way, you're going to need a killer soundtrack if you want to go up against Westworld, because that has one of the best soundtracks of any TV show. So I'm trying to work out what piece of music we should end on. I'm, I'm thinking more human than human by White Zombie. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hungry about, Like the Wolf. Yes, also works. Um, I'm a real wild child. Yes, yes, I was thinking of that one. And, um, and I want an animal. Animal by uh, Def Leppard. Def Leppard? Uh, the leopard in this one wasn't deaf, so, no. yeah. I might just finish on the Dr. Evil and Mini-Me version of Just the Two of Us. And that would be the island of Dr. Moreau. I hope we never have to come back to this territory again. But I've had great fun going over the wreckage of the island and saying, what, what happened? What happened here? We may never know. Yes. Well, we know now.
And uh, like I said, to get hold of this one, you're going to have to go digging. You're going to have to look. It's going to require eBay. You might have to pay quite a bit. CEX to send you the right thing. And if you've got Amazon Prime, you can watch the documentary. So at least you get that side of things. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out. of a horse, eyes of a priest, mind of a wasp, hair of a chimp, postman shin, flowers of a crab, and a buffalo anus. Head on a raven's torso. You can't really tell with that one. It's a subtle one. Right. We are the mutant race. We're a bric a brac mammal.